Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast network. I am your host, Nick A.R. Johnson. And today, despite his performance on the previous episode, I have a very special guest once again back in the house, Albert Gim. Albert, what's your incredibly problematic start to this podcast? Just just hit me with it. Uh, hmm. Let's see. Uh, why we should... This isn't like you to not have something incredibly problematic just off the top of your head. <laughs> I'm trying to... Look... Look, Nick, I'm trying to be on my best behavior. I like being on your show and I want to be invited back. So I've decided to turn turn it down a notch, you know, and I won't be talking about politics and I won't be talking about Yankees baseball. I'm here to talk about basketball. That's why the people are here. So um, I have nothing spicy to say other than I'm really excited to be here. Well, I appreciate you not calling me racist on Hanukkah anymore, but it's not Hanukkah <laughs> anymore anyway, so you can't pull that trick. Good God. No, no, you're a pleasant man. <laughs> I appreciate it. Anyway, moving right along, this is at least five times faster than we got into the actual topic of the podcast last time, so we're we're improving by leaps and bounds here. But today we are talking about your most recent feature article on Jet Howard and why you think he is top five in his class. Now... We'll get into this in a bit. I'm not quite there with you, but Jet Howard is definitely someone who I did not buy into enough before the season started. And within the first couple of weeks, I was like, okay, I was wrong. He's much better than I thought he was. And, you know, he's basically just been climbing up my board since then. But since you're slightly Howard, higher on Jet Howard than I am, and also because you're the guest here, let's start off with the place to start with Jet Howard, which is his shooting touch. So, Albert, what did you think about Jet Howard as a shooting threat when you went back into the film for this article? Well, first off, Nick, I, I did want to say, like, I, I like you, um, was somebody who heading into the season was not super high on Jet Howard. Um, I actually don't even remember where I had him on my board, but is just like you, is a guy who definitely grew on me. And um, I think there are a lot of different reasons. And I, and look, I realized, like, me saying that Jet Howard should be top five in his class is a provocative statement to make. And I'm sure a lot of people don't agree and that's totally fine. But it, the reason why I decided to write this article the way that I did was that it, the, the, my, my rationale was I wanted everybody to see 
like the, I mean, maybe the readers who read my stuff regularly can come to have a better understanding of the type of prospect that I like. Right. And I think Jed Howard really fits into that mold of he's gigantic and really, really skilled. And I've always liked guys who play like they're smaller, but are also gigantic, as I mentioned in my in the intro to my piece. And um, a big part of that and a big part of his skill is his shooting. I mean, Jed Howard can really shoot the ball. I mean, if you look at him shoot the ball, I, I think like his release is so fast. People might think it looks a little funky or whatever, but I mean, he's got a lightning quick release, right? Which enables him to get it up and over pretty much anybody. He's also really tall. Um, he's listed at six eight on the Michigan website. I actually think he might be might end up becoming even taller. I mean, he's got the genes. His dad was like six nine, six ten, right? Six nine, I believe. And so I, I think Howard's gonna end up right there around six eight, six nine. But a guy who's gonna be an incredible shooter, who's already proving in in college basketball to be a really good movement shooter. A guy can, who can also shoot it off the dribble now. Now that's something that he's uh, kind of growing into, blossoming into. But he's showing and flashing more and more as we go and i think that's a really incredible skill to have when you're that big and that tall and that long so um and when it comes to the shooting the initial thing that i'll say is that has to be the marquee skill that we talk about with him because it's what he's going to be known for and he what he's doing really well i think currently he's shooting 37.4 percent from three on pretty good volume and i think that's only going to get better and he's got range for days as well so um just to kind of start uh, I think he's a really, really good shooter. Yeah, the thing with the size is something that also jumped out at me on the tape. I look at him and it's like, if he, he's 6'8", in the same way that LeBron is 6'8", where it's like, okay, you see that it's on the website at 6'8", and you're like, great, that's that's the height. It's like, you know, unlike, say, the Dwight Howards of the world who were listed at 6'11", when he was like maybe 6'8", right? It's, you know, with Jet Howard, that 6'8", is underselling rather than overselling. It's the Kevin Garnett, not the Dwight Howard. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And also, I think it's like um, it's like a proportional thing with him. I think his legs are so long, and so he like kind of like hunches over at times and whatever. So he's he might like present himself to be smaller, but you know, if he's like standing up straight, he's gonna be really really tall. And the long legs definitely help. So yeah, no, I'm 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 100% in agreement with you. It's funny, too, because you, as you said, mentioned this in your intro, but he's someone who's 6'8", who does not play like he's 6'8", and it's really interesting because in some ways, I think that's a huge positive for his game, and in other ways, as we'll get into with areas for improvement, you look at him and he's like, you should be better at a few things than you are, given how big you are, but I mean, the shooting, you mentioned the volume, he's just under seven three-point attempts per game, right? This is not, you know... The example I go back to all the time because he's fun to shit on on this podcast is Rajon Rondo with the Kings when he shot 37% from deep and people are literally like, oh, is he developing his three-point shot? It's like he took two a game and every single one of them, there wasn't anybody within 10 feet of the guy, right? That is not Jet Howard experience. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's an important distinction to make when we're talking about shooters. You know, there's one thing that I very cruelly refer to on here is the Derek Williams principle of like, you know, someone shoots 40% on a tiny volume of threes and people think they're a three-point shooter can lead to misevaluations and bad outcomes. But with Jet Howard, I mean, he's shooting, you know, 37, 38% on nearly seven threes per game, right? He's taking a lot of shots from deep. He's taking a lot of tough shots from deep and he's knocking them down. And it's really interesting to see just how it opens up the rest of the Michigan team to have someone like him out there spacing the floor as a 6'8 forward. 
No, for sure. And that's something that I talked about in my article as well, like the tandem of him working with Hunter Dickinson and obviously working with the guys like Kobe Bufkin and um, I forget the other guy's name is McDaniel McDougal. It's Mick something, right? I apologize. I, I'm not great with names, but I, I think oh, Metcalf over- is never going to forgive you. I know. I know. Metcalf, if you're listening, I hate you, but um, just kidding. But um, this is my podcast. That's, oh wow! Ouch. Um, okay. Uh, but anyway, you were hurting me, so I had to give the self burn here. You know. <laughs> no, the thing I'm I'm 100 in agreement with you. I think just you know, obviously him running, he's able and capable of running that two man game with Hunter Hunter Dickinson, and he's doing a good job of it. But also just the type of shots that he's taken and the type of sets that Michigan they run for Jet Howard. You know, they got him on pin downs. They run some pistol action with him, and that, that's something that I wrote about in my article. Like when they run pistol with him, and he gets it from the wing, and he kind of goes into that pick and roll at the top. Like he he does some good stuff there, but he's able to just set up his shot and get off clean looks and even if they blitz or whatever like i obviously we'll talk about that later um, in terms of area of improvement but overall just like the top types of shots that he's taken and making that he's willing to take that's another aspect of shooting that i find to be really important is like, we could talk about percentages for, 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 for days and you just mentioned it nick how like it can be such a facade sometimes just if you look at the numbers and don't look at them closely enough but overall with jet like i, I just love the confidence that he has to put up the shot that he, he he is putting up right now and that it doesn't matter if a hand is in his face or he's you know not perfectly balanced and not perfectly square he's got just immense confidence in his jump shot and for me that's a really important sign when you're evaluating a guy and his potential as a shooter it's yeah, like obviously the mechanics and stuff, all that stuff is important, but also are you willing to put them up is another important thing. Yeah. Like when Corey and I talked about the Thompson twins before the season started, one of, for me, Amen, I've always had huge concerns with him as a shooter because in his first season in the OT, he just wasn't putting up any shots. And like you, you could see that he was like almost afraid to take threes. And I think that's a really important part of the evaluation when we're talking about guys of this age and in college and OT or international or whatever, are you willing to put up the shots? Do you have the confidence? I think is really important as well. And I think Jet Howard has that. Yeah, this is a tangent, but this is also why I think I buy into Coleman Hawkins' shot long-term more than most people is because, you know, he doesn't hit them at a great rate, but, you know, first of all, when he misses, they're almost all either long or short. He's not missing side to side, but more to the point, Coleman Hawkins is not afraid to take their shots. And, you know, sometimes that stirs you a little bit. It's not like Jet Howard, where it's like every time he puts the ball up, it's like, okay, that's a good shot because Jet Howard's shooting it. But, you know, in terms of development, there's, you know, the accuracy, right? Obviously, you know, if you can't hit them, that's not that helpful. But if you're not, you know, it's the Wayne Gretzky slash Michael Stock Classic, right? It's 100% of the shots you don't take, which, you know, is a question of philosophy if you're Coleman Hawkins or Dion Waiters. But if you're Jet Howard, you know, that's going to be your bread and butter is getting up those shots. I'm also really glad that you mentioned the two-man game with Hunter Dickinson. Dickinson is someone who I've had as a mid to late second most of this draft, and it's because I really buy into what he can do on the offensive end. And, you know, you mentioned it in the article, but you know, heading into the season, it was very clear that everything was going to run through Hunter Dickinson, right? And so if you're Jet Howard, you know, as you mentioned, he's not, you know, a typical big man. So Hunter Dickinson isn't exactly boxing out for post touches, right? But, you know, his ability to get on the floor and stay on the floor was definitely going to be dramatically boosted by being able to work effectively with Michigan's best player and Michigan's lead guy. And, 
you know, it's something that I have gotten the joy of watching for the Sacramento Kings this season of when you have a big man who can pass and a wing shooter and they develop a two-man game. I mean, Demonis Sabonis, Kevin Herter two-man game is one of my favorite things to watch in the NBA this year. Probably second behind Demonis Sabonis and Key Murray two-man games, which they don't do as much, but when they do, it's always a shot for Keegan and that's fun. But, you know, the idea being that if you're the kind of wing shooter that Jet Howard is and you're the kind of passing big man that Hunter Dickinson is, it's so difficult for defenses to cover everything that those two guys can do in tandem. And Jet Howard figuring out that two-man game with Hunter Dickinson so quickly has me really optimistic for, you know, how quickly he's going to be able to figure out NBA offenses. You know, it's a similar sort of principle of you don't get that many big men in college who are as offensively gifted as Hunter Dickinson is, but there are a lot more of them in the NBA. And I'm fully confident that Jet Howard can work out a two-man game with whoever his center is going to be as long as the dude can pass. No, I, I well, a million percent agree with that. And I, and I love what you said, right? Like Dick, and I wrote about it in my article. The thing that's really interesting about Hunter Dickinson is the versatility that he brings as a big, right? And because he's such a versatile big, it, it, it just gives Jed Howard more options and it adds more wrinkles to the offense. And something that I, I say all the time on our pod is that like it, a good offense, like a, an elite offense, offensive player is one that gives the defense more things to think about, right? Like if all you do is one thing, then that makes things a little bit easier for the defense. Right? Like, I, And I hate to say it, but a guy like Duncan Robinson, he's such a one-dimensional player that he starts to lose his value o- over time because defenses can figure it out. We're talking about the NBA. We're talking about the top 1% of basketball in the world, right? But if you have a big like Hunter Dickinson who can offer different things, who has different things in his toolbox, right? The, the added versatility there just makes things more interesting. And then Jet Howard also himself coming in as a rookie with the confidence level that, that he has. You brought up the offense. You think about the office basketball game, Jet Howard has the skill of a Jim Halpert, but with the confidence of a Michael Scott is kind of what it is, you know? And Jet Howard isn't missing shots going, I hit those. You know, Jed Howard is actually putting up shots and he's nailing them and impressing right now. And so I, I just feel like overall, the confidence level, the skill level, the size, and this and this is just one aspect of his game, right? We're just starting with his shooting. There, there's so many levels to it that it's incredible. And also like, and I kind of mentioned this in passing, but even the even the movement shooting stuff at that size is not really normal, right? You don't usually get guys that are six, eight, six, nine that can shoot the way that he does off the move, you know, like this isn't really, really easy stuff or stuff that is like normal. Right. So I, I think that in itself also deserves to be mentioned and he deserves a lot of credit for because, because it's a hard thing to do and he's pretty damn good at it. So I, I wanted to throw that in there as well. Yeah, that's a fantastic point, and I do want to circle back to that in a minute because I think it comes into play with what he does with the ball in his hands. But just going back to the two-man game stuff, I mean, I think the way that it's just so brilliant with Howard is, as you mentioned, just the multiple levels to it, right? I mean, there's like an improv element, honestly, to watching the two of them out here, out there where it's like, if you don't know what, if we don't know what play we're going to run, you don't know what play we're going to run, right? So, you know, set a screen at the top, pitch back beyond the arc. You know, if there's space to roll to the rim, Jet hits him for the roll pass, right? If there's, you know, space to shoot, Jet can pull up and shoot. If, you know, Dickinson picks and pops, he's someone who, you know, isn't a Jet Howard shooter, but can shoot, you know, certainly better than most paint-bound centers. There's just so many options that the defense has to try and deal with. And you know, it's not just that there are so many options that the defense 
has to try and deal with. It's that these guys have high enough basketball IQs that if you shut off one way, one avenue, you know, they could just immediately flare out into the other, right? It's like, okay, you know, you shut off the high pick and roll, great, we're just going to, you know, set a back screen and try to skip, right? Or, you know, we're going to pitch it to Kobe Buckin on the wing, and he's got a ton of space because everybody's looking at the two of us, right? I mean, there's so many different things that they can do when it's, you know, not just scripted, okay, this is the play we're running, this is the, you know, this is the action, this is where we're going to go, right? It's, you know, actually, I can look at the defense and read the defense and say, no, you know what, we're planning on running the high pick and roll, but actually the lob's open right now, so Hunter, why don't you just, you know, roll your way to the rim and see what we can do? You know, when you have those two players with such personal offensive talents, there's just so many different things that you can do that you're pretty much guaranteed, at least a decent shot because even if the defense shuts down one option you have so many different counters that you can go to no i 100 percent agree man and, and the biggest thing like even be like yes the two-man game the versatility of that two-man game the creativity of that two-man game is awesome but also like jet howard shows really good process too like as a shooter, like he's a guy who knows and understands the gravity of his jump shot. He's a guy who he sees that, you know, if he's coming off a pin down and the defense they're they throw two at him, like he, he can make those read and reactions, right? He can, he knows what to do. Um, he's a guy who understands that now that there is a little, like now there's tape on him, he's got a reputation. Teams know that he's a shooter and they're going to step out to him. I, I feel like he's, generally not all the time but generally and growing into that decision making as well so all of that is part of shooting like all the best shooters know how to do those things and they add those different wrinkles to their game which make them even more you know elite shooters so i I agree with everything that you said i think that two game two man game is like really important but also the way that he's now reading defenses and reading and understanding his magnitude as a shooter and showing good process is also another reason why i'm so high on him so let's move on to talk about that creation stuff now and you know i referenced earlier that i wanted to circle back to this but you know you mentioned this and i think it's a huge part of the package for jet howard he's got an exceptional handle for his size and, you know, he is already shooting more off movement than you expect from, from a 6'8 wing. And I think that just, you know, even further bolsters the conversation we were having before with, you know, the more counters that he has to defenses, the more difficult it will be for those defenses to figure out what to do with him. And, you know, I think that heading into the season, you know, I knew he was a shooter, but his passing has, I think, been the thing that surprised me the most positively. Like, you know, the shooting to the volume that he's done it maybe would have been, you know, I don't think I would have anticipated quite this, but really the passing has been the sort of surprise for him. And, you know, part of that is he didn't have the ball in his hands as much at IMG as he would playing for pretty much any other high school team in the country, right? Like, you know, you're playing alongside that team. You're not exactly going to have many creation opportunities when you you got the stable guys that they had, but yeah, I mean, he is just so impressive with the ball in his hands. And, you know, that just makes it harder for defenses to deal with him. I mean, you brought up Duncan Robinson. My go-to, go-tos for this have always been Troy Daniels and Ryan Anderson, where it's like they were such great shooters. But, you know, and with Ryan Anderson, too, like he was a spectacular offensive rebounder, right? It wasn't even that he was just a shooter, but they weren't good enough on defense and they didn't do enough else. So, you know... Even with someone like Anderson, who actually 
shockingly got more money per year than Duncan Robinson has on his extension. But, you know, he wasn't just a shooter, and it still wasn't enough. And with Howard, that's not a concern that you're going to have because he's such a good passer, because he makes such good decisions as a shooter already, as you mentioned. You know, there's so much room for him to operate that guys like Duncan Robinson and Troy Daniels just don't have because once you force them off the line, they're, you know, desperately looking to kick the ball out to someone else to do something. Nick, I I think everything that you just said is exactly why I see him as much more than just a role guy. Like, I I mean, once again, like when we talk about positions and roles on the team, like your, your fill in supporting cast type of players are guys who are more limited guys who have one or two skills and what they do is they kind of accentuate or support the the main guys the star players who can do multiple things and that's my thing with jet howard where it's yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna jump on your pod and say that i think he's an an excellent ball handler or an excellent passer that's not what i'm saying at all i think he's a very good handler right and i think he's showing real passing chops but with the, the really, ultimate i think it's for his size that's really the thing ex- exactly it's for his yeah. size but also the fact that he has it in his bag that he has it in his toolbox it's he 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 can't in my opinion right he can't just be seen as a role guy considering how many other tools supplementary tools he has in his game right i think when you put all that together that that creates more robust package of a prospect, right? We talked about the two-man game when when he's running pick and roll, which is something that's not common either, right? For a guy that size who may have come in as, you know, a quote-unquote shooter, he does run pick and roll sometimes, and you could see it, right? Sometimes he's running pick and roll with Hunter Dickinson. He's able to do some of the pound dribbling stuff. He, he doesn't do it a lot, but maybe a couple times, once or twice, he'll put it, he'll do like the hostage dribble stuff and make good reads off of it um, as a shooter, right? He'll catch it. But, you know, maybe he's on the weak side, right? Off of some strong side action. He catches a skip pass and he's making reads, you know, whether it's off of a pump fake, pump, pump fake head fake, he's driving, then passing it to the opposite wing or corner. He's making reads that you we really didn't expect him to make. And then even off of that pick and roll action with Hunter Dickinson, sometimes it's a pick and roll, sometimes it's a pick and pop. And in my little video compilation, there are a couple of possessions there where he runs pick and pop with Hunter Dickinson and the two defenders are kind of, double him and he just throws a beautiful hook pass over the top to Hunter Dickinson for a wide open three and like these are the types of reads that are gonna help him in the NBA because you need to be able to make those reads those types of passes if you're gonna have the ball in your hands and I think ultimately that's my main point with Jed Howard is that he's showing skills right now in college that'll lead an NBA front office to believe wait a minute if he's doing this right now in college and we're going to get him into our program with our coaching. And he's going to go through our fitness program and our dieting or whatever. Like his body will not only continue to grow and develop, but all of these fine technical skills also will de- develop from a strong base that he already has. And that's why for me, like when you start putting that together, in my opinion, he's got some ingredients that could eventually lead to him being a really really good player, potentially even like a start star ish type of player as well. It's really interesting because they're pretty different as players, but I think Keegan Murray is actually an excellent case study for what we can see from Jed Howard with Keegan, you know, in the first couple months of the season, he was basically being put on the floor to shoot threes and that's it. You know, 
base floor, run three-point line to three-point line, try and figure out as much as you can on the defensive end, because, you know, like all rookies, he struggled on the defensive end. And then, you know, as the season went on, you know, he started getting up more shots, you know, continued to knock them down at a really high rate. And, you know, the more shots he was knocking down, the more chances he had, the more minutes he had. And, you know, the last couple weeks in particular, he's gotten a lot more opportunity with the ball in his hands, as opposed to just being a floor spacer spot up guy. And, you know, the reason I think that's really relevant to Jet Howard is, you know, he will get playing time as a shooter, right? You know, it's very similar to Keegan, you know, even there's a lot of differences in the rest of their games, the ridiculous volume and, you know, high 30s percentages from three is basically the same, right? And, you know, so the case study being, okay, he gets out there on the basis of his shooting, his defense, which, you know, we'll get into, but, you know, the defensive stuff, pretty much all rookies are bad on defense. And, you know, Keegan was pretty brutal defensively to start the season. And, you know, over time, he's gotten more minutes. He's gotten more of a feel for the differences between the NBA and the college game. And suddenly he's a much better defender in January than he was in October. And I think there's every reason to believe that Jet Howard could follow an extremely similar path. You know, he's going to get on the floor because he's a 6'8 dude who can shoot, who can move the ball, who isn't completely useless with the ball in his hands and the defense he'll ask him to figure out. But as time goes on and he gets better at, you know, the little things, you know, gets better and better at, you know, I don't think he's going to be shy about putting up shots, certainly. But, you know, as he sort of tweaks the finer elements of his game, he'll have the opportunities because he's this shooter. And then, you know, once he starts getting more trust from his teammates and from the front office, you know, just like, well, not the front office, the coaching staff, really. But, you know, what we've seen from Keegan this year is basically the same thing of like, okay, you know, early on, you're going to get minutes and you're going to be a spot up guy. And that's just going to be what it is. But you continue to prove yourself in that role and you'll get more and more opportunities. And given the bag that Jet Howard has, there's every reason to believe that he'll be able to be impressive with those opportunities. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think um, obviously fit, team fit where he gets drafted, what coaching staff he ends up playing for, obviously is going to be really, really important, but I'm with you, man. Like the, the shooting ability will get him on the floor. The fact that he's gigantic will get him on the floor. I actually think, yeah, like he, he isn't the best defender and we'll talk about that later, but I think that'll, that'll eventually be there. And then as you mentioned, right, with more opportunity, he's going to be able to flash more stuff. And the more stuff he flashes and the more he works on that stuff. Like oh, Another thing that really surprised me with him that I was really impressed by, he's a 6'8 guy who's running pick and roll sometimes. And the way that he can he can split that pick and roll, what, what is it called? No, you call it splitting it, right? Anyway, it does a great job of that. A really great job. Now, sometimes it can get a little sloppy, but yeah, we're not, we're not as I wrote my piece, we're not talking about Rod Strickland or Tony Parker here. We're talking about, or Dwayne Wade. We're talking about a 6'8 wing who was, according to a lot of people, was expected to just be a shooter, right? So the fact that he's even flashing these things, not that he's doing it on a consistent level, but even a flash here or there has to get you excited and it has to get you wondering, man, do we have the wrong idea in terms of what his ceiling could eventually be? And I think I, I love the Keegan comparison. Like I actually don't think it's that far off. Right. And also Keegan's a guy who spent a couple of years in college. Right. And we're talking about Jed Howard in his freshman season 
already obviously i mean it must be great playing for your dad but also sometimes it's not so great playing for your dad but overall it's yeah, ask like Jace about that yeah. <laughs> but overall you know he's had a good experience there and he's been given freedom the freedom to try different things and to try and fail and try and succeed and i think all that is important because we when we talk about growth not being linear i mean the best way to see and to attempt to grow is to just try stuff and i, I like that he's trying stuff and given the freedom to try stuff and so i i can't help but just love it and and once again even with the passing really quickly I, I, before we move on even like the connecting stuff you know like when he doesn't like ha when he's not creating off the dribble like just the one pass away stuff i mean when they, when they make a weak side hit and they crash to him and he makes that extra pass all that stuff is really important to me and i think when you once again the the, the collection of all that is what makes it really exciting I think you hit the nail on the head. And I do want to continue talking about the connecting playmaking stuff because that I think is just massive for him. I mean, you know, it's the it's similar in a way to, you know, not to go back to the Keegan well, but in the idea that, you know, Jet Howard has the ball in his hands and you are not worried about him making a terrible decision. Right? Like everybody screws up sometimes, and that's where I think you hit the nail on the the head with the, you know, give him the opportunities to try and fail, right? You know, and this is something that Metcalf, who of course isn't listening because this is my podcast, but Metcalf and I talked about a lot last year, which, you know, specifically came up with Alondis Williams and Iverson Molinar. But, you know, sometimes you want the guys who are going to just make the right reads, just, you know, make the simple pass, not try too much. But if guys don't feel like they're allowed to fail, they're not going to try and make the next level passes. And with Alondis Williams, he went from, you know, barely getting the ball at all his first couple of years in Division One, to being basically the Alpha and the Omega for Wake Forest last season, right? I mean, not, you know, Jake Arabia was there. It wasn't like he was everything. But, you know, the idea being that he made some ridiculous highlight reel passes that, you know, if he was in a different system, he probably wouldn't have tried. And, you know, with Howard... If you're looking at him as, okay, you know, he's going to make the right read, he's going to make the connecting pass, great. He's already shown that he can do that to a certain degree. What I'm fascinated to see now is how empowered will he be to see if he can expand on that, to see if he can be more than just a connecting piece, to see if, you know, when he's running pick and rolls, it's not just an occasional thing because, hey, we've got a great mismatch jet, go for it, right? It's like the more opportunities he has with the ball in his hands, the more opportunities he has to make not just the simple passes but the you know higher level reads then the easier it's going to be for him to continue to make those reads going forward because he has the confidence and you know again this is not exactly a player who struggles with confidence but you know being empowered to make those trickier passes and know that you're not going to get nailed to the bench if you try a crazy pass and it ends up in the fourth row right you know there's a lot of developmental opportunities that he's just going to take because he's going to be willing to try them as opposed to say you know, someone more like a Molinar who I thought was a much better passer than he got credit for because he didn't try the difficult stuff. It was just, I'm going to make the right decision, even if, it, you know, maybe there was a smaller window that I didn't try that would have been an easy bucket. You know, I'm not going to risk the turnover. That was, that was beautiful. That was beautiful. I loved everything that you said, Nick. No, no, for, for real. But Nick, just listening to you talk about all this, it really has me thinking about like the evaluation process of the whole. I feel like, you know, as we're talking about Jed Howard and we're talking about 
the types of opportunities that he has right now and the, the just the type of stuff that he's trying. I think that that's the reason why I think evaluation is so tough and scouting is so tough because I think so many times based off of what we see just in college and just off of the tape that we have here that we make too definitive of like sometimes we make such hard judgments and we make such definitive statements about guys who may not be in the perfect role that's suited to them, right? May not be under the correct coach, may not be in the right system. There's so many different factors that go into the evaluation process. And like, when I think about a guy like Jed, I look at him and I love the fact that he's trying stuff. I love the fact that he's failing. I love the fact that he's now like developing and and, and is is executing that two-man game with Hunter Dickinson and also being a solid connecting piece, whatever. But there are so many different factors that go into what we see and what we're able to perceive, right? And that's the thing with with guys like Jed Howard or whatever. Like there are going to be people out there be like, dude, He's a role player. Like, what are you talking about? Dude, he's a shooter. What are you talking about? And like, for me, it's like, cool, that's easy to say. But when you start putting all the pieces together and you study every aspect of his game and you see the different things that he's trying, you see the things that he's good at, you see the things that he's bad at, but ultimately you see the things that he's attempting and you put all that together. For me, that's the reason why I don't want to be so definitive about him just being a supporting role type of player. And something that I mentioned in my piece is that's kind of the mistake that I made when uh, Corey and I, we were evaluating Franz Wagner before that draft, Mm -hmm. right? We saw what he was doing at Michigan. We saw the role that he was playing. We saw the things that he was good at at that time. And we're like, all right, cool. So he'll be a great supporting role type of player, a great third, fourth option who's going to be able to do the things that he like does well. And he'll just focus on those things. And then he gets to the NBA. And then you start to think back like, damn, there were some moments where he flashed some of this. There were some moments where he did handle the ball and he did show off some of the passing and he did show some of the bucket making, but we didn't see all of it. So we just thought, Mm -hmm. okay, this will be his role on the next level. So ultimately, Nick, the point that I'm trying to make is that I think we have to be careful about the definitive statements that we make about guys at this level. And we do need to kind of weigh and balance out what's the current production we're seeing in college and, and, and also what's the potential, what are some of the flashes and what could this actually become, I think is a really difficult thing to do, but also a really important part of evaluating. Yeah. It's one of the most fascinating parts of evaluation to me is that there's so many different factors that go into all of this and a lot of them we can see just by watching the film, but you know, a lot of them we can't. I mean, you know, we, we you said we wouldn't talk Yankees baseball, but I do have to circle back to Yankees baseball here because this is the clearest example of it I have. Sonny Gray was near all-star level pitcher, comes to New York and just doesn't it doesn't fit the vibe of the Yankees. Just you know, looks out of place, looks lost, and. You know, he gets out on the hill and he gets destroyed. And then, you know, he moves on and all of a sudden he's a solid pitcher again, right? You know, Joey Gallo, same, well, I mean, less so because he wasn't as good afterwards. But, you know, the idea being that, you know, there's so much that's going on behind the scene that we can't see that sometimes you just miss because, you know, you had no idea that, you know, (laughs) 
I mean, you can name it any number of players and any number of you know things that they dealt with that had absolutely nothing to do with basketball that made their careers you know not go in the direction we would want. But even when it comes to on the court stuff, there's still so many different areas that you know a prospect can do well at or fail at, and depending on the team they end up on, depending on when they end up on the team they end up on, just so many different things will determine. Okay. This is someone who will get the developmental playing time they need. And then, you know, they get that developmental time. They go from, you know, small role player to bigger role player to earning their way into a starting spot to maybe more versus, you know, someone that we literally just talked about, right? Alondis Williams, you know, went from being the man at Wake Forest to being a two-way guy for the Nets who didn't get to see the floor and then they cut him, you know, because he didn't really... He didn't get anywhere near the opportunity that he did at Wake Forest. I was like, well, you know, okay, there's point guards ahead of him that I won't discuss, but there's point guards ahead of him, right? And, you know, if he didn't get the opportunity, he's not going to be able to show everything he showed at Wake Forest. And then all of a sudden, he's basically where he was before he transferred to Wake, right? Like, just looking for that opportunity, looking for that breakthrough. And maybe it'll work out for him. I really hope it does, because I love evaluating him. And maybe it won't. And that's how it is sometimes. But, you know, this is something that I circle back to on this podcast all the time is, if you have multiple different ways of earning your way into a rotation, you will have many more opportunities to build on your weak points, to continue to bolster your strong points. And, you know, with someone like Jet Howard, right, he's someone who you're going to, he's going to be out there for his shooting, right? And you're also going to rely on him to be a solid connecting playmaker. But, you know, the flip side of the Franz discussion, and granted, you know, a lot of the Franz evaluation was defense, which is not going to be the case for Howard, which we'll certainly get into. But, you know, with Franz, he just didn't have the ball in his hands at Michigan as much as he did his first couple of years in Orlando. And that's almost never how it works, right? That, you know, you go from being like the third option on your college team to basically being the second or third option for the Orlando Magic. And all of a sudden he has 38 point game his rookie year is like, wow. He can do a lot with the ball in his hands. So like, well, okay, you know, again, as you mentioned, there were flashes of it, but that wasn't what he was being asked to do. And when he was asked to expand on that in Orlando, he showed that though he's actually a lot more than you would have thought if you'd just seen him in limited opportunities in Michigan. No, man. I yes. <laughs> yes is the answer. And dude, I I can't believe you brought Sonny Gray into this and I respect it so much. And as you were talking, like my brain just went to Carl Pavano and Jared Wright. And I'm just like, oh, man, like the it, it's such a valid point, man. All these guys that the Yankees brought in and teams will bring in right guys that they believe will fit in their system and fit in their city and fit uh, under the microscope. We see this in sports all the time, right? Whether uh, all kinds of big markets, you bring guys in and you wonder if it'll work. And sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. But guys like Carl Pavano, Sonny Gray, Jared Wright, these guys just couldn't deal with the pressure of playing in new york and playing in that system and like honestly like to sunny gray's credit like he came he came to the yankees and then the yankees were like hey you're just not going to throw any of your any of your secondary stuff and just throw fastballs and he was like oh okay well my fastball is my best pitch but sure i'm going to trust you guys and obviously his career with us went to shit so that wasn't great but i i think overall nick the point that you're trying to make is is such an important one right it's situation development circumstance all that's important but wherever you end up the more skills and ability that you have and the more that you have in your toolbox i keep saying toolbox i'm, I'm not even a handy uh, a handy guy i can't even like 
I can't even change the oil in my car. But um, I, I just think like the more you bring, right, the more levels there are, the more layers there are, uh, the more Shrek there is to you, uh, the more opportunity you're going to get. And uh, you're welcome, Nick. You're welcome. I know you love that one. Thank you. Thank you. I, I did, in fact, appreciate that. No, now, now I was going to go somewhere and I've completely lost it because you just <laughs> threw me for an absolute loop with the Shrek comparison. So, uh, oh, this is, yeah, this is where I was going to go with okay. it. Even the people who get paid millions of dollars to do this for a living, fuck it up all the time. We talk about busts for a reason, right? Because even the people who are paid millions of dollars, and these are, you know, not just people who paid millions of dollars, like many people who are paid many millions of dollars, like whole organization betting their futures on the draft. And sometimes even the professionals just get it wrong, you know? But, you know, the flip side of that, you know, for every Sonny Gray, there's an Andy Pettit who's much better under the bright lights than he was, you know, floundering for the Astros, right? Yeah. Like sometimes you just do everything you can, you do all the homework you can, you try and, you know, figure out every possible which way that each different prospect's career could go. And, you know, sometimes you get it right and sometimes you just get it drastically wrong. And that's a huge part of the fun of this for me is that, you know, there's there's a whole lot that even the best people in this space get completely wrong. And, you know, I have my dramatic misses that, you know, we can recycle, but we don't need to. But, you know, the point being that there's so many different ways that this would go. And there's so much that even if you, you know, watch every single second of film, you, you're not going to get because, you know, you're not going to know that, you know, prospect X who went 43rd in the 2023 draft was in a terrible situation in college. He hated his roommate, his girlfriend broke up with him and then he gets to the NBA and all of a sudden it's a new lease on life. And this 38th pick who, you know, looked like they were really struggling in a lot of areas suddenly figures a whole bunch of stuff out, right? It's like, there's so much that even if you watch every second of tape, you won't be able to know what's going on behind the scenes, but you know, even with the tape, you know, the difference between a guy who's quick enough in college to get by and not quick enough to get by in the NBA. I mean, the example I go back to all the time is Cliff Alexander, who absolutely dominated everybody athletically in high school. And he gets to college and it's just not the same. It's not the same game. You, they're, you know, bigger big men. There are more athletic big men. And if you can't figure it out, you can't figure it out. And, you know, sometimes that's the high school to college jump that really gets players. Sometimes it's the college to NBA or other pro league jump that gets players. And, you know, the flip side, of course, is every year there's, you know, a few undrafted guys who find their way into rotation, right? And, like, if there's any bigger sign that everybody missed, right, it's a dude literally goes undrafted. You know, these days it might be I had a promise in the 40s and I want to go undrafted so I can pick where I go. Sure. But those guys are making that decision because they weren't getting a first round promise, right? <laughs> you know, if you give a first round promise to someone who ends up going undrafted, you know, I mean, that's stupid. Of course, they're going to go in the first round if they get a first round promise. But the point I was attempting to make before I said something incredibly stupid was that, you know, every year, even if you're saying, okay, guys who are in the 40s say, no, I'd rather go undrafted so I can pick a spot. That's still 40 picks that passed before it got to them. And every year there's someone who goes undrafted that figures it out. And every year there's, you know, there's a Patrick Beverly or a PJ Tucker, right? Someone who 
you know, either wasn't drafted or was drafted very late second round, didn't figure it out, got cut from the NBA, went to a professional league elsewhere in the world, slowly figured out more and more things over time, come back to the NBA and they're a valuable role player or in PJ Tucker's case, you know, a starter on a high caliber playoff team because they got to figure all of those other things out. And, you know, this happened in his late twenties, right? It's just, it's so many different things that go into evaluation that you know, even if you do everything right and you do all your homework, again, even the professionals get it wrong all the time. I'd just like to say that I love the fact that I get to make all these mistakes, uh, but I don't love the fact that I'm not getting paid millions of dollars for it. Yeah, that, that'd be, I mean, <laughs> hey, if we take hey. over the Knicks front office, they, yeah, eh, they've been decent drafting lately. Yeah, I see, I was going to go with title. the Kings, but. I was going to go with the Kings, but the Kings have actually had a couple of really good drafts in a row. So this was, if this was three years ago, you and I could have taken Vladi C. We would have been fine. Damn. Damn. Hey, but ultimately, though, Nick, just want to say, and I know we're recording, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is why we're doing what we're doing, man. This is why we're grinding. This is why we're doing pods and writing articles is because maybe one day a uh, team will trust us to make those decisions for them. And so just got just to gotta, just gotta be on the grind right now. It's, that's what it is. So, yeah, this is all beautiful stuff. Speaking of being on the grind, let's transition to areas of improvement for Jet Howard. Mm-hmm. How do you like that one? So in terms of, you know, <laughs> it's funny because when we're talking about grind, you know, the most frequently associated word with grind other than grit is defense, you know? And I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because sometimes I really like his on-ball stuff. Yeah, yeah. I hate his off-ball stuff basically all the time. And it's weird because on the one hand, you know, figuring out the off ball stuff is usually what takes prospects the longest in terms of their NBA transition. I mean, some guys are just elite off ball guys and they just, you know, have it figured out. They know where to be, but, you know, and this is something that Metcalf and I talked about numerous times with Kendall Brown last year. Sometimes it's really weird when you see guys who have just such a, beautiful, brilliant understanding of the game on one end of the floor and just absolutely nothing on the other end. Like the incredible intelligence and proficiency that Kendall Brown showed with his cuts on offense last year was the diametric opposite of the just complete inability to figure out how not to get packed up on the defensive end. And, you know, it's really funny to me when there are players with those kind of dramatic differences where it's like, you can see the basketball IQ and the understanding of the game on one end of the floor. And then you look to the other end, it's just an absolute mess. And I mean, you know, Usman Baruba is kind of the defense equivalent of this, you know, the opposite of the Kendall Brown, where it's like, man, if he could just figure out anything on offense, given how good this guy is on defense, he'd be a world changer. But it is really weird to me when prospects have that sort of dichotomy and it's definitely there. It is there. The dichotomy does exist. I won't lie. Um, and that's something that I wrote about. No, I, I do agree with you. I think some of the on-ball stuff is interesting. I think he's showing more effort. And, and, and like, I, I don't think he's a guy who doesn't try. I do something that I wondered by myself that I didn't write in the article is when I look at Jed Howard and I look at his, at his physique, I, I don't believe it, that he's in the prime optimal shape. Right. I do think that with NBA conditioning and him just not being in college anymore or whatever, I I actually think his body's going to improve. Like, I'm not saying that he's even like, I'm not saying he's fat or doughy or whatever. I just don't think he's in the best 
shape possible is what I'm trying to say. And so for a guy who spends, sure adds 20 pounds. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is the amount of energy that he expends on the offensive side is going to leave you a little tired is how I feel with him. I think he does get a little tired on the defensive side of the ball. And that's where you find that some of that stuff on the, when he, when he's playing uh, on ball and off ball, right. With off ball stuff, like something that I wrote about in my article is like a lot of times the communication is just not there. And what happens like, you know, you and I, we played basketball in our lives before and sometimes you're kind of gassed and you are not talking as much. Um, you're not really calling stuff out. You're not being as active. You're not being as aware. Your head isn't on a swivel because you're just freaking gassed, you know? And so mm-hmm. I, I'm not trying to excuse his his defensive level being where it's at because by saying that he's like out of shape or whatever, I think it's one of the factors, right? I do think with him with better conditioning and him being in better shape, I think we will see a better version of him defensively. And obviously with NBA coaching and experience, all that will happen as well. Um, but overall, for me, I think it's a huge area of improvement. I'd love to see him talk more on defense. The communication, I wish, was better. The off-ball stuff is all a part of that. And, um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I in my article, I claim it too. I, I never said he was perfect, right? If he was a perfect prospect, he'd be in the in the conversation for number one. He's definitely not there. Um, but I just think he's such a high-level prospect on offense that I can excuse some of the lapses on defense and I'm going to be more optimistic about it and say that when he's in better shape and with better coaching and in a better circumstance, uh, I think he can become at least an adequate to who knows, maybe even a really good defender because he does have, he doesn't have bad feet. I actually don't think he has bad feet. Um, I I think he's got great length and good size. And I think his upper body is going to get stronger, which has an effect not only on his defense, but on his finishing at the rim as well. I think as his upper body improves, I think all that stuff will just lead to him being a better, stronger, more, more, uh, more effective defender is what I'll say. Yeah, no, that's a great way of putting it. I think the, you know, the easy part here is, you know, when people talk about teams being locked in on defense, you know, this is sort of what I, what I think of in this particular conversation, right? It's like, if you're playing off ball and you lose focus for like a half second, you can get back up just right away. You know, that half second is all it takes. And so, you know, the reason people talk about being locked in, locked in, locked in is, you know, you're not losing focus. You're not, you know, as you said, you're communicating, you're making sure that, you know, there aren't any lapses that the defenses are taking advantage of. And, you know, in a possession where like you can do everything right for the first 22 seconds and then screw it up the last two, you know, that's still a bucket. And even if you play great defense for the first 20 seconds, you know, the result is going to be you turned your head with three seconds left on the shot clock. And that's when he got the, you know, the pass of the roll man and easy dunk. And you're just, you know, standing there looking two different ways being like, what, what just happened? Right. It's like, that's the kind of thing where like, if you slip for half a second, you can get taken advantage of. And I think the, you know, physicality slash in shape point is really interesting one to make here because yeah i mean you know if you're exhausted then it's a whole lot easier to not be locked in for the entire 24 seconds or you know lose sight of your man on an action and not get back into it because you're exhausted it's like well you know what i'm beaten already am i really just gonna sprint to try and close this out when i'm probably not gonna make it anyway Eh, screw it just let him have the bucket 
No, hundred percent, man. I I think it's real. Now, once again, Nick, I do want to say, I, I didn't throw that in there to excuse anything, right? I I really firmly do believe that it is an area of of growth that he needs to show. I think it's something that he needs to improve on, and I think he will. Like I, I really do believe. Like I, I, I'm not just saying that, and and, and I, I, I'm not just like this hopeless optimist when it comes to his defense. Like I really do believe there are tools there, and that's the biggest thing. Like if those tools and that foundation wasn't there at all, then yeah, like I'm talking about nonsense, right? But I do believe, like considering his size and like his mo- his mobility, which is another thing that I didn't really get to talk about on, on the offense side of the ball. Like there's a real flexibility to him that was really surprising for a guy that size like when he has the ball in his hands the reason why he can actually like create space for himself and there is some shake to him is that he can really kind of get low and get long and there, there's this weird flexibility to his game that i think is really interesting that i also think applies to the, the defensive side of the ball as well i do think that when he's locked in he can get low can get into a stance can move his feet can use his length right i i I have never claimed that he's going to be he that he is or will ever be like an elite athlete, but it's not like he's the worst athlete either, right? So I think as a lateral mover and with his length, I think there are some building blocks there for him to become an effective defender, which is why I said what I said. Yeah, I mean, I think you put it the best way you could already, which is you know he's not perfect, and none of these prospects are because if they were perfect, we wouldn't need to have this discussion, right? I mean, even with you know, Victor Wembanyama, you can find nips to pick, right? You have to search a little bit harder than you would for Jeff Howard to find them, but you can find them. They're there, you know? And if if any of these, again, if any of these prospects were perfect, we wouldn't need to, you know, talk about it. It'd be a very simple discussion. It's like, okay, so LeBron James is entering the draft. Uh, what do we think? Um, I mean, I guess he can't shoot perfectly. That's sort of, it's like, if, if you have to, you know, there's a certain degree to which you're going to find something. And, you know, ultimately, I love the point you made about, you know, being super optimistic about this, because, you know, the thing that I have to talk myself out of with pretty much every prospect is buying into the 95th percentile scenario and ignoring the fifth percentile scenario. And with Jet Howard, you know, I think the reason that, you know, even though I'm not quite as high on him as you, I get the top five case. And the reason why I have him as a clear lottery guy is, the fifth percentile outcome for Jed Howard is what? Fifth percentile outcome for Jed Howard, in my mind, is he's the 10th man off the bench. He shoots a bunch of threes, and you rely on the team to outscore the opponent when he's on the floor, right? That's still, you know, I mean, given how much of a crapshoot the draft is, getting that player at 11th overall, you know, it's not what you want, mm-hmm. but it's not, you know, he's out of the league in three years, right? And, you know, I think that's, you know, part of it is even if he never figures out the defense, his floor is so high because of what he can do in the offensive end that, you know, unlike, say, some of the other prospects in this draft class, it's like I could see a scenario where, and for instance, Gigi Jackson is the guy I have right ahead of him on my board right now. I could see a scenario where Gigi Jackson doesn't figure out enough is just super inefficient offensive player who doesn't figure out enough on defense and is out of the league much faster than people would have guessed and goes back to the bus conversation we were having right with jet howard i think the floor just because of his size and his shooting and his connecting playmaking is so much higher you know and that's the situation where it's like okay you know you were talking about star level outcomes for jet howard i think you know 
the reason that I have GG ahead of him on my board is because I think there are more star level outcomes for GG than there are for Jet. But again, I mean, you know, all of this is down to the individual evaluators, right? I mean, you know, when you were talking about Amin Thompson earlier, right? It's like, okay, you're really worried about the shot and there's every reason to be really worried about the shot. And, you know, I think that with Amin, it's, you know, and I have him higher than I have GG or Jet, but, you know, the idea being it's, a lot easier for me to see the worlds in which Amen Thompson and Gigi Jackson are busts than it is for me to see the world in which Jeff Howard is a bust. I mean, mm. I guess if he goes like fourth overall and is the tenth man off the bench, like I mentioned, you know, he's probably going to be looked at as a bust. But like, ultimately, you know, if he hadn't gotten hurt as often as he had, Otto Porter Jr. would have been a very solid third overall pick. Yeah. And basically all he was, was like a third or fourth starter. And, you know, maybe he could have been more if he didn't have all those injury concerns earlier on in his career. But, you know, the idea being that people just assume that if you're like taking a player with a third overall pick, it's like, oh, future Hall of Famer. It does not work like that. Even with the number one overall pick in the draft, which has by far the highest success rate, you get your Anthony Bennett, right? You know, it, it happens even with the players at the very, very, very top of the draft. So, you know, if Howard falls into the like, you know, back half of the lottery, like where I have him, mm-hmm. it'll be really hard for me to see a world in which he's, you know, a bust, like a bust bust, not like a Twitter calls him a bust because he's only averaging 15 points a game in his third season in the league, right? But like actually a bust. Mm-hmm. I think that he has enough baseline skills that it's really difficult for me to see a world in which he fails completely. Whereas even with some of the players I have ahead of him, it's much easier for me to imagine a scenario in which it doesn't work out. Yes. Yeah. I, I think, I think he's a high floor, high ceiling guy, which is not always the case. Like I, I really do believe like his worst case scenario, like you said, is going to be a pretty good player and his best case scenario who, who actually freaking knows. I don't know. And I, and once again, I, I, I don't want to say that I I'm like a hundred percent sure that I think he's going to become a star, but my, my opinion is that he has the, 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 the ability there. The signs are there. The building blocks are there. There, there, there's a there's a whiff of it, right? That he could one day become this like really really good player is what I believe. And so, I, I would never argue that I know 100 percent that he'll turn out to be that way. But he's a really exciting guy to watch and a guy that I I I really want to believe in because of what I think he can do. I mean, part of the joy and the despair slash difficulty of being a draft evaluator is you know, basically exactly that, right? It's like, you know, you can look at the same player and look at the same tape and look at the same stats and have two completely different opinions. And, you know, it's entirely possible. I think that he does become a star. And I want to move on now into the NBA comparisons that you made for him, because I think these are two exceptional comparisons for him and really, really great indicators of what I think it can look like if it works. Now, I definitely want to ask you your opinion on this before we close out, but I do want to move on to your NBA comps quickly. And I think they're indicative because basically the idea behind these NBA comps is, look, maybe he's not going to be an all NBA guy or an MVP, but you know, these are guys who made a couple of all-star games and were really important starters for really good teams for a very long time. So why don't we get into those NBA comparisons now? Who is the first guy you threw out for Jeff Howard here? For sure. I mean, the main, and Nick, I, I appreciate, you know, um, 
the praise. Um, I, I think the, the main point that I wanted to make with those two guys is like, I wanted to imagine these two guys in the NBA today. Um, I didn't want to think about Jet Howard being those guys in their day and age and when they played, because the two guys that I mentioned in my piece were Detlef Schrempf of the Seattle Supersonics, right? Um, also, obviously, like the Indiana Pacers before that and the Blazers later on, but a guy who's mostly, I think, in my opinion, remembered for his time with the Sonics um, and, you know, the, he was a part of the title run and everything. So um, Detlef Schrempf was a guy who I believe if he had played, if he played now in our league, wow, our league, like I played in the NBA, but if he played in the NBA now would be a guy who would be an extremely intriguing guy. And I think would would have been a highly coveted guy in our game today, just because he was a guy who was a legit like six nine six ten, right? Who had an unbelievably beautiful jump shot, right? Could really shoot the ball, could also handle and pass his vision as a passer was incredible. And I think in, in the NBA now, he would have been given more opportunities to show off more of that passing while also I think he would have taken way more threes. I went back and watched some games from back then and he was taking set shots from 18 feet that just, he would never take if he played now. Right. But he was taking these set shots and they were all going in and just an absolutely beautiful shooter. And then I think about a guy like Richard Lewis, right. And you think about his time also with the supersonics back in the day with Ray Allen and also during his time with the magic when they made the finals, a guy was huge, gigantic, right. Really big guy who had great size to him could really shoot the ball, but also had other skills to him as well, who could handle the ball, who could do different things. And I think, the main point that I wanted to make was that I think Jet Howard will be that type of player on the next level. He's going to be a really big guy who can shoot the ball, but has way more skill to him than people may actually give him credit for. And if you take Detlef Shrimp or you take a Rashard Lewis and you put him in our league now, those guys I think would average 20 to 25 points per game, like very easily. Rashard Lewis was doing it back then when there was less spacing, right? Maybe he'd be a 30 point per game scorer now if he played in our league in, in the NBA right now. Uh, and, and that's how I feel. Like I think Jet Howard, his ultimate outcome, he might become a 20 to 25, maybe even more per game scorer because of the, the shooting, of course but also the other skill sets that he has to go along with that shooting. And of course the size as well. I think the Richard Lewis comparison is particularly apt and you brought up the idea of bringing him into the NBA today, but I mean, Richard Lewis in in non insignificant way is a pretty sizable part of why the NBA is the way the NBA is today. Those Orlando magic teams, you know, basically were just like Dwight Howard is going to deal with the defense. And then, on offense, he's going to be the man in the paint and everybody else is going to space the floor, right? You know, that, you know, the standing on the Orlando Mad Dwight Howard, Richard Lewis, Tito Turkle, Orlando Magic, you know, the whole deal with those teams is they, you know, I mean, you, I don't think it's fair to say that they started the, you know, revolution because really, really Mike D'Antoni was, you know, at the forefront of this. But, you know, that Magic team, you know, long before all these analysts were saying, oh, the Warriors are a jump shooting team. They're never going to be any good. They're never going to win the title. They're never going to win anything. Like that Orlando Magic team made the NBA finals, you know, half a decade before the Warriors came to prominence. And it was just that. It was Dwight Howard's the man in and everybody else better shoot. And Richard Lewis being as good as he was, both with the ball in his hand and as a shooter, was a huge part of why that was able to work as well as it did. And 
you know, there is something in every NBA team's offense these days that is a direct product of the Mike D'Antoni to Stan Van Gundy to Steve Kerr Warriors, you know, reshaping of the league. No, I a hundred percent agree with you, man. I, I think it's, um, I, I'm, I'm just reminiscing about that team, right? Like Hito Turkoglu was another guy. And it, honestly, Hito Turkoglu could have been a guy that I, I used as a comparison as well. Like another guy who was extremely gifted, extre- extremely talented, real finesse player, wasn't, uh, wasn't an explosive athlete by any means, but um, a guy who could do a lot with the ball in his hands. But I, I agree with you, Nick. I think that team overall, right, with Jameer Nelson and whoever else they had on that team, um, Courtney Lee. You mean P.J. Tucker, right? <laughs> I had to. I had to. Good for you. Good for you. Thank but you. I, I, just, I just feel like overall, um, Jed Howard's going to be able to Obviously, me being super optimistic, I, I think he's going to be able to flash some of those skills in time. Right? It might not be from the jump, might not be as much in his rookie season, but eventually, I think he's just going to mold, mold himself into that type of player, like a Detlef Schrempf. I mean, like you think about like the role that Detlef Schrempf played for those those Sonics teams. Like he wasn't the number one option. You know, they had Gary Payton, they had Sean Kemp, they even had like Sam Perkins just sitting in the corner shooting threes and stuff like that. Right? Like I think. Like, but once again, if Detlef Shrimp played today, like I think he would look so different. And the things that he could do with the ball in his hands and the passing chops that Shrimp had back in the day, he's just one of my favorite players of all time and a guy that I grew up just loving. Like as a kid, watching that 96 Sonics team, I was just like, God, like I just love this dude. Like who is this guy? I don't know much about him. They're telling me he's German. They're, tell- they're telling me he could do all this stuff. And I'm watching him play. I'm like, oh, he's awesome. Right. And I, I just he just came to mind when I was watching Jed Howard. And I think Jed Howard is a guy who can really handle the ball, who can really pass the ball, and he's gonna be a great shooter. So all that combined, I think, is a really exciting prospect. So yeah, man, I agree with everything you said. So let's wrap this up by quickly talking about you know projection. And I want to specifically focus on ceiling for Jed Howard. Now, of course. We are no ceilings, and we did spend 20 minutes of this podcast going on a very deep philosophical rabbit hole about, you know, various different ways of evaluating prospects and, you know, how sometimes we can't really figure it all out. But I'm going to ask you to figure it all out anyway and toss all that out the window. So I'm curious, you know, what you think of his ceiling, because for me, I can see a world where he makes a couple all-star teams and has one just spectacular shooting season that you know, gets him like a third team all NBA nomination. Now, you know, the flip side of that, of course, is, you know, I could say, hey, if everything works out like 99th percentile outcome, you know, he's probably a first team all NBA guy if 99th percentile outcome. But, you know, just as we did earlier with, you know, thinking through like fifth percentile outcomes, I want to think of like 95th percentile outcomes, you know, like the optimistic, but not, you know, perfectly optimistic, right? Like not, he figures every single hole out, but just, you know, if he figures out, you know, the stuff that he really needs to figure out and he continues to bolster the, you know, strongest areas of his game, I could definitely see a world in which he like backdoors his way into an all NBA team or two and makes a few all-star games. You know, again, I don't think he's someone who, you know, 
projects in my mind as like a Hall of Famer, which is why I have him, you know, I have him 11th on my board. And it feels a bit low, but I think the reason that I have him 11th is, you know, we mentioned all the stuff with high floor, high ceiling. I think that a few of the guys ahead of him, the reason I have them ahead of him is because their ceilings are higher. But I want to get your opinion because you're a guy who has him top five. So do you think it's unreasonable or do you think there's maybe a world in which he's a little bit better than I'm projecting him when we're talking 95th percentile, like very, very positive outcome, but not everything going perfect. No, I, I think it's very fair what you said. I, I don't want to fight you on it, but I, I think ultimately in my head where I'm kind of landing is like, as much as I love Julius Randall, like he made a second, team, second team, all NBA team like that. That's something right. Like he had himself a career year where he made second team all NBA. Like that's, that's something crazy, right? And I think I, I'm not saying that that, that, that is definitely going to happen. But if we're talking about ceiling, then we're talking about like a 95% ceiling. I don't see why that's impossible. Why Jed Howard can't make a second team All-NBA, a third team All-NBA, be on a couple of them, like you said, and ultimately make a couple All-Star teams and have a very su- su- successful career, I think is a really fair judgment on what we think he can become. Um, so I am not going to make the argument that I think he'll become a hall of fame level player. I'm not saying he's going to make 10 to 15 all-star teams. I think he's going to be a really, really good player, but there is a world where he makes a couple all NBA teams. I think there's a world where he makes a handful of all-star teams and he ends up having an extremely successful career is what I'm thinking and what I believe right now. And I think is not too far off from what you said as well. I'm just going to read off something that is hilarious to me, and I'm not going to give any context because you can figure out the context. Juwan Howard, two-time NBA champion, 2012-2013, NBA All-Star, 1996, All-NBA 13, 1996. They are spectacularly different as players, but literally this 95th percentile outcome that we were discussing for Jed Howard is basically his father's career. Kind of funny how that works out. That that is that is pretty funny. That is pretty funny. Yeah, I, I, and uh, very possible, very possible. And he may do it in a more exciting way because, as good of a, a player Jawan Howard was, he was never like the most exciting player to watch. If I am, I think people will agree with me on that. Um, but I think Jed Howard does have some more uh, exciting aspects of his game, and I'm really excited to see that on the next level. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap things up? Go ahead and plug away. You have a lot of plugs to plug, so I'm going to let you have it. Um, yeah. What do I have to plug? Let's see. Um, I'm I'm slowly brainstorming and trying to figure out who I want to write about for next week. And that's always fun for Nick because that means I who knows, right? There are a million different uh, possibilities and outcomes that may come from my writing. And I am one of the weirder writers on our website. And I'm sure it's can be at times treacherous to edit my writing. So Nick, thank you. And I love you. And I really appreciate all that you do for us. And especially for me, because I'm sure it's not always the easiest to edit my work, but I'm very appreciative is the first thing I'll say. And on top of that, uh, I, as you guys may or may not know, I'm a co-host for the Draft Ag NBA podcast, also part of our No Ceilings NBA network, uh, podcast network. And I am, uh, well, Corey and I recorded a really fun, exciting podcast with uh, Jeremy Wu from Sports Illustrated, who is a, is, is a guy who was very gracious to join us and someone who I met in person uh, at, at a UCLA game and who is a really cool guy. 
and a really smart guy and a guy who has been doing this for over 10 years now and gave us a lot of great insight. And uh, there was actually a lot to learn. Um, I, I was really appreciative of everything that he said and honestly taught me while he was on our pod. And so I really hope you guys check that one out and you guys enjoy that one because I had a blast. Um, and so I think that's all I have to plug. So definitely, first of all, check out the episode with Jeremy Wu that will come out the day after this deep dives episode. Albert, that was far kinder than I deserved, but I really appreciate it. And I always have tons of fun reading and editing your pieces and I always have tons of fun chopping up with you on the podcast. So thank you for coming back despite me shutting down your opportunity to say something awful about me in the first 30 seconds of the podcast. <laughs> I look, my goal is to, whenever you ask is I want to be available and I want to have a good time with you and I don't want to slander you on your own show. So um, I'm, I'm glad I accomplished that today. Well, you're one for two of the last two episodes, but hey, that percentage is going up. <laughs> Growth. Growth is what it is. Growth. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. He is Albert Gim. You can find him on Twitter at Albert O. Gim, and you can find his written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com. Be sure to check out his article on Topic Pending, which will come out the day after this podcast. And of course, again, definitely check out that episode with Jeremy Wu on the Draft Act, which again will come out the day after this episode. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on the No Ceilings NBA website as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback about the deep dives episodes of the podcast, you can feel free to Reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.